All right, we got a great conversation for you guys today. We're gonna bring back John Meacham, he's a Pulitzer winning biographer. He was the editor at Newsweek. And we talked to him about his recent book, His Truth is Marching on John Lewis and the Power of Hope before. Uh, and some of his other work, uh, also number one uh, New York Times bestseller. But he's got a new podcast, Fate of Facts. So, John, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Uh, no problem. Like we did last time, I think we'll probably disagree in parts here. Uh, and um, and I'm curious about your overall take on the establishment. And that's probably where we'll have healthy disagreement. That's fun. But first, let's start talking about your podcast. So, what's the essence of it? Well, the argument is, which I think you'll agree with, is that one of the two major parties in the United States of America has gone crazy <laughs> and has lost its moorings in terms of a reality-based universe. It's not a both sides issue. Extremism is not a left-right problem right now. It could be. Tomorrow afternoon, the left could do something that's crazy and dissociated from reality. But they haven't today, and the right has uh, by continuing to uh, participate in a cult of personality, a uh, disinformation culture in which fact itself is relegated to becoming the means to an end, uh, the means to a will to power. And what I wanted to do was go back and give sort of my theory of the case. It's my opinion, uh, take it or leave it. Uh, But the question I've asked, and a lot of us have asked, obviously, for a long time, is what was it about the 2015 to 2021 now period that created the conditions for so many people to lose their bearings and be willing to go along uh, with this demagogic assault on basic democratic lowercase d values? All right, John, I love that conversation. Can't wait to have that conversation. I've got my own theory. I know you're shocked. Um, okay. Uh, but, right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but first, I wanted to just acknowledge yes, I agree with you. Uh, the right wing has come close to losing their mind. Their leaders have literally. I mean, uh, we just covered a story today on the Young Turks where Mike Flynn went to go uh, campaign for Lynn Wood, Wood to be. Chair of the GOP in South Carolina, like the head of the Republican Party in South Carolina. I don't know if Linwood's going to win, but there's some chance that place was packed. Mike Flynn couldn't even remember the Pledge of Allegiance. But more importantly, Linwood thinks he is literally the second coming of Jesus Christ and that Trump is still in office. The guy is a full blown literal lunatic. And, and there's tons and tons of people following him. And a chief lunatic, is, you know, Donald Trump. I mean, how do you where do you start? He thought that the stealth fighter was literally invisible to the naked eye, like it was Wonder Woman's jet. He he thought you take out coal and clean it, and that's what clean coal is. I mean, the, his IQ is so low, it's ridiculous. Let alone the word that he says, let alone the fact that he says outrageous things like he invented the word fake. And yet, the right wing looks at that and goes, "That's my boy. That's my boy." Yeah. So there's something. Yeah deeply wrong here. Now we get to the interesting question of what? So what's your theory? My instinct is that there's always a there's always a fringe that's dissociated from reality. Uh, John Birch Society uh, was sort of the Cold War QAnon in, in, in some ways. Uh, but to me, the more interesting thing is 
exactly what you said. How does a regular Republican meeting in South Carolina, although I am reminded as a Tennessean, I can say this, there's an old line about South Carolina that it's too small to be a republic and too large to be an asylum. So it sort of falls between those two. What What is it about that fringe that has become mainstream? And as I've looked at it the last couple of years, my sense is that many formerly mainstream Republicans, and I say formerly mainstream because I mean the American mainstream, where you can disagree about what to do. You can disagree about the relative role of the state in the marketplace. You can disagree about the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. You can disagree about regulation, but you don't simply deny the fact of your eyes and ears, the discernible reality. So what was it, what did it? My view is that a lot of folks have felt that since the end of World War II, they have supported Republicans, particularly for president, who have not delivered for them, who have run and courted them, gotten into power, and then rejected, ignored, or in some cases actively governed against the interests of that base of people. So you start with Eisenhower in 1953, he breaks that 20 year drought of Roosevelt and Truman and comes in and what does he do? He basically ratifies the New Deal. He says that any party that tried to undo social security would be committing political suicide. He appoints Earl Warren to be the Chief Justice of the United States, who then leads the unanimous opinion in the Brown versus Board of Education case. He does the Miranda case and does in 1962, the rules that sectarian school prayer in public schools is in fact unconstitutional. Then you have Richard Nixon. 1968, he runs to the right, he gets into office, he falls under the influence to some extent of Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He decides to propose a guaranteed annual income. He had a health care plan that was far to the left of Obama. He appoints four Supreme Court justices, one of whom wrote the Roe versus Wade decision, and he goes to China, thereby undoing a central tenet of the Cold War. Ronald Reagan comes in as sort of the hero, the corrective to this Nixon moderation. And what does he do? He cuts taxes dramatically in 1981, and then he raises them five times and negotiates with the Soviets. Federal spending rose under Ronald Reagan. George H.W. Bush is the uber example of this. You know, He ran to the right, he had no genuine conviction that he was gonna govern from the right. And so when he got in and when he did what he thought as he put it was right for what he called sound governance, he was startled perhaps foolishly by Newt Gingrich and others who marched out the other side of the White House and went on to the 1994 landslide. George W. Bush would tell you there's a straight line between TARP and Trump. So to step back from that, from the personalities of those presidents, you have race, you have economics, and you have culture. And to some extent, foreign policy, although that's that's been pretty much pushed to the side. I think Republicans are now the captives of their own narrative of grievance and victimhood, which is ironic because they deplore grievance and victimhood for everybody except themselves. 
Yeah, let, let's let me uh, do maybe our last bits of agreement here, and then I want to move on to the disagreement. So, um, so I agree with you. They've become uh, you know obsessed with grievance and victimhood. Um, being racist isn't a problem. Uh, calling someone racist uh, is deeply problematic, and and you know, I mean, look, it's as simple as war on Christmas, right? And this is way before Trump. Uh, their main problem was that somebody was telling them happy holidays, and that somehow made them a victim. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much they cry uh, over the smallest thing. It's the entitlement that they have, etc. And I agree with you that they didn't get what they wanted out of their Republican presidents. Okay. But now, John, uh, I think there's a reason why. And I think that there is actually some rationale to their rebellion. Uh, unfortunately, I think it got misdirected in horrible ways. But I, I think the underlying rebellion is not necessarily wrong. So um, the things, when you're talking about liberal Republican presidents, that's basically between 1938 and 1978, right? So obviously, uh, Roosevelt and Truman finish out, but, but that period is the 40 years of economic boom in this country. And, and that's where we still, in my opinion, had democracy. And in that democracy, uh, we elected both liberal Democrats and liberal Republicans. That's because that's what the country wanted. I think 1978 is where everything changes. So you had Buckley v. Vallejo in 76 and First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti in 1978. And that's that same Lewis Powell that you mentioned that, that did Roe versus Wade. He the, writes the majority in Bellotti. And that says corporations can spend unlimited money in politics. And from there on, that is to me the rise of the establishment. And it is completely pro-corporate and it has begun to drive the country crazy. So part of that is politicians, what, what are corporations gonna do? They're naturally going to do what is logical. They're gonna look for return on investment. Well, politicians give them enormous return on investment. I can give you a thousand examples. We basically legalized bribery well before Citizens United. Citizens United shoots a, a dead horse. So, and then by the way, this definitely affects the Democratic Party and I have huge criticism for them as well. And, and that's why I come back ironically to giving the Republican voters a tiny bit of credit here, or maybe a decent sized credit, because they're the first to rebel against this establishment and go, I don't think our politicians are serving us. I think they're serving someone else. Now, the part where they got misdirected was they're serving George Soros or the Jewish space lasers or what, you know, or the child eaters or whatever insane things. And, and then I go to my second layer of of the establishment, and I tell you all this because I'm really curious what your reaction is going to be. Um, the mainstream media, um, they told them that the politicians were decent, honest, honorable people. They still tell them that. Yeah, they criticize Cruz, and yeah, they criticize Trump, etc. But they never talk about the corruption. And when you ask in polling, corruption comes in number one or number two in almost every poll. Over 90% of Americans say the politicians don't represent their voters, they represent their donors. Yet almost no one in mainstream media will say the most obvious thing. So the Republican voters, to their credit, were the first to go, eh, I don't believe you guys. I think it's all lies and they're working for someone else. They just got the wrong person that they're, in fact, it's not a person. They're all working for corporations. So that's my thesis. What's your take on it? Yeah. 
Uh, I got to do one fact check just for the uh, dorky lawyers out there. It was uh, Lewis Powell did do the, the chamber vote, the chamber memo, and, and the decisions you're talking about. Harry Blackman wrote Roe v. Wade. Um, Sorry, he was in the majority question. there. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, no, no, no. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to save you from emails. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, the, so do Republicans get credit for? saying that the corporate state and the corporate ownership of representative democracy should not stand. Is that a good way to boil that down? Yeah, I think that's fair. And and it's in their bones, it's in their instincts, it's in their actions, although they don't necessarily call it the corporate state, but they're beginning to. Even Tucker Carlson is attacking big business on Fox News. Yeah, uh, irony within irony there, unquestionably. Uh, look, I'm a Jackson biographer. I, I, I think populism is an incredibly important, uh, almost, I know this sounds odd, moderating force. Uh, it's incredibly important to have it in the dialectic between the, the economic interests that were once landed and industrial and now information age uh, to try to uh, create a Republican lowercase r structure that is durable. And the greater uh, wealth inequality, the the less social mobility, the uh, tighter the tighter the grip of uh, of corporate uh, profits on uh, the country is ultimately insidious and destructive of democracy, because as you say, at the middle in the middle of the 20th century, when we had a remarkably growing middle class, largely white. Uh, we had a pretty vibrant uh, civic culture that helped create the conditions uh, for the women's movement, for the civil rights movement, for the gay rights movement, uh, for things that I think we would agree that the wider application of Jefferson's assertion of, of equality is is a good thing. I, the only my, my only hesitation. Uh, on this area of disagreement between us is giving those voters credit. Because I think to give those voters credit, it has to be a conscious choice. That is, I I think that they have to, because, and I'm not arguing in my thing, by the way, that a bunch of uh, country club Republicans decided that, oh, you know what, Eisenhower didn't do right by us, so I'm going to vote for Trump. You know, I, ju- I just think it's this uh, subterranean yet quite real uh, unfolding drama. So, uh, powerlessness is at the root of almost all great political change for good and sometimes for ill, right? And many more Americans today feel powerless than even 50 years ago. And that is largely a function of a diminishing economic culture of opportunity. And it's something I salute President Biden for. Uh, He understands that the engine of social mobility has to work. Uh, The private sector has not delivered. So he's trying to use the public sector to, to goose it along. And the question for both of us, right, is what's the turning? What's the reckoning? Is is there a moment of revelation where people say, 
I'm going to change my mind because I see these results. Yeah. And that that worries me. That keeps me up at night. Yeah. Is that I think I think Joe Biden could produce, you know, 15% economic growth and milk and honey uh, coming out of, of everything. And, and you'd have uh, 45% of the country saying, you know, his dog bit somebody and, and therefore he's a communist, right? I actually and disagree. I disagree. And so, like, look, no one's tougher on Republican voters than I am. Uh, I've called them every name in the book, including things you're not supposed to say, like lacking intelligence, uh, etc. Right? Uh, but look, he—it's a matter of what you deliver. And so, if you deliver for your donors, they hate you. And and the number one thing that attracts people to Donald Trump is that he basically says, "Screw the establishment." And then they're willing to tolerate every other lie because that core truth to them is more true than anything the mainstream media says. So when Biden delivered on COVID relief bill, people saw it and his popularity right now is through the roof. So even with that 40 to 45% of the country that has in some ways lost its mind, enough of them are now saying Biden is great. Now I'll do predictions, I love to do that because I think that this is predictable. This is this is. This is not some mystery you can't figure out. Here, so what is Biden gonna go do in the future? My guess is very close to nothing. Because now we're getting to the parts where corporations don't agree. So if you wanna do a stimulus and that goes into the economy, it doesn't come from corporations, it comes from the public dole basically. And and then it stimulates the economy, corporations like it, that's, that's better for them. What's the one part they cut out? $15 minimum wage, because corporations do not like that, right? So. The PRO Act has no chance of passing, corporations don't want that. Even though labor has a lot of money and they pour in tons of money into politics. And so they should be able to win on the one thing they want, but corporations have too much money. And I can go down the list. And so Biden will say there's nothing I could do, which is not true. He could actually create public pressure on mansion and cinema. Fighting is not just for fun or for venting or to be passionate or it's certainly not to be irrational. It's a strategic choice. You're a historian, what did LBJ do? He fought. And he leaned on people, he intimidated people. What did FDR do? He said, I welcome their hatred. That is something a, 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 a modern Democrat would never say and Biden would never say, right? And so he's gonna surrender on almost all of his agenda and then people are not going to get anything further and then they will turn on him. Because mm. the more you serve your donors, the more they hate you. The more that you serve your voters, it's so obvious. So, and, and so to my Democratic friends, so yes, if you're talking about police reform, that is great policy and we desperately need it. And will you pick up African American votes with that? Yes, you will, right? But when you talk about that purely on racial issues rather than on class issues, you're gonna lose a big chunk of voters, not because they're racist, although some of that is true, right? But, mm. but mainly because it's not talking about them. When you talk about the voters and when you deliver for the voters, like Biden is now, you become incredibly popular. When you stop doing that, then you lose your popularity. So my sense is that's exactly what's gonna happen to Biden going forward. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, there's a great, uh, you, you, know, you make a compelling case. Uh, I think that the president is trying to do something that I don't know if it's possible anymore, uh, which is build up political capital and then spend it. Uh, that's an old model. It may not be one that applies anymore. 
we may be in an era where it is a deal to deal, issue to issue uh, structure of leaders and led. Uh, but it makes, and I'd love to hear if you agree with this, it makes the persuadable number to me perhaps the most fascinating question of all of this. How many Americans are there who are willing, who say voted for Trump in 2020 and who will be engaged in the process through four years for Senate seats and for a presidential election next time? Because the presidency matters, right? How many people are actually persuadable? Now we had people who voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. Uh, so in, in living memory, we do have people who have moved pretty uh, almost in a mind numbing way on the spectrum. I don't know if it's 5 million. I don't know if it's 10 million people. I don't think it's many more than that. Do yeah. you have any sense of that? Yeah, so I know that there is a 28% of the country that is right wing and completely unmovable. That's a very specific number, but I base it on dozens of polls that I have read. And no Republican in Trump, no matter how unbelievably popular the things that they are doing, ever gets below 28%. So there's that will not move under any circumstance. But man, that leaves you a lot of room to play with. And so yeah. the only person, only people who could move it in either direction for the Republicans or the Democrats are populists. So the, the corporate guys are never gonna move any of the damn numbers. We're just gonna go to our separate corners and, and there's gonna be general, and there'll be lower voter turnout, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think that the chance of the corporate Democrats or Republicans winning in the future is very low. Uh, they've only won because they've been propped up by the mainstream media. That's my opinion, okay? And with enormous billions of dollars in essence of free advertising. And so you're, we're either gonna go populist right, and God help us if that's the case, or populist left. Mainstream media thinks that populist left is the enemy. No, it's the solution. Otherwise, they're gonna go populist right. And they, the populist right at this point doesn't even believe in democracy. So so I, I've gotta get to this before we end. So you see me criticizing mainstream media a lot in this conversation. John, how could they not see the corruption? How could they not see that when Sheldon Adelson gives $100 million to the Republican Party in one election, gives $30 million to Newt Gingrich, he is buying them wholesale. How could they not see Ted Cruz taking $13.5 million from the Mercers? And when the Mercers slam the door in his face at the convention when he doesn't endorse Trump, he turns around and immediately endorses Trump and will do anything for Trump. That it's the money, it's the money, it's legalized bribes. So that is what is driving the nation crazy. They're going to Soros and other insane explanations like QAnon. Because they think the one thing that I know for sure is that when the media tells me that these politicians are not corrupt, that is the biggest lie of all. Okay, I, so I'm a little fuzzy on mainstream mainstream press saying politicians are not corrupt. So you're 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 standing yeah. by that. Oh, 100 percent. So when. When they have conversations like meet the press and and oh. uh, all the talk shows, etc., they're having a legitimate conversation as if Lindsey Graham has an actual opinion, Ted Cruz has an actual opinion, and to be fair, Chris Coons or Joe Manchin has an actual opinion. They don't. Here, I'll give you one last example. Uh, 
Manchin and Cinema vote against $15 minimum wage. They make a big spectacle out of killing it. In fact, Cinema, of course, does this, the hips swirl and the theatrical thumbs down, etc. Right afterwards, they go to the National Restaurant Association, the other NRA, and they collect checks. It's right there, and they brag about collecting checks. So yeah. when the media doesn't cover that and pretends they have a real opinion, that's what makes such a huge percentage of this country go, I'm turning you guys off, I don't believe you. I'll believe, yeah. I'll believe QAnon before I believe that. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, 30 years ago now, God, uh, getting to the point where you can say that. Uh, I wrote a piece, co-authored a piece at the Washington Monthly with uh, Ted Marmer, who was at Yale and Tom Hamburg, uh, longtime uh, Washington reporter, great guy. And uh, it was about why single payer was not on the table uh, for the healthcare reforms of the early Clinton years. And it was a cultural kind of anthropological piece about ideas that are simply not granted legitimacy and therefore don't end up in the kinds of conversations you're talking about, right? Don't end up on the Sunday mm -hmm. shows, don't end up on the op-ed pages, except as kind of a, you know, uh, Paul Krugman like uh, occasional piece. And it was the, the as I remember the, the, the argument of the piece was if we, if we, if people who think about this stuff don't insist and sell the idea to the public around the media, it will never have it stand uh, as, a, as a legitimate idea. I think that money in politics Maybe, don't hold me to this, but I think it may be kind of like the single payer debate of 30 years ago. It is what you're saying has a huge amount of merit. It, it defies common sense and Adam Smith and everything we know about human nature to argue that money is not of a, if not the vital force in all this. Um, and what require what it requires, I think, is what you're doing is talking about it and trying to get the idea from being somehow undermined and delegitimized in an a priori way to getting it on the table. And I think that's something presidential leadership could possibly do. Um, and there has to be one of, one of the this goes to a point you were making. One of the many tragedies of the Trump era was there's a lot of good that can be done with populism, right? It's just that we got the worst possible guy and the worst possible kind of it. And so maybe I'm foolish here, I often am, but I think if President Biden can govern effectively, can deliver for those voters as much as possible and maybe more than you were laying out, then you have a record there and you he, he may have some capital to, to spend on this. I could be wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right in your diagnosis. Uh, I just am not entirely sure what the, what the treatment is. Yeah, uh, it, the treatment is some point somebody's gotta say the corporate cash is corruption and right now, yeah. There's almost no one in the Republican or Democratic parties who has that courage because it involves well, calling out their own side as reform. well. Yeah, as you know, political reform is the hardest reform because no one who's 
benefited from a system can see anything but its wisdom that it had the great insight to produce greatness for them. Right. And so, um, yeah, I wish I had a better answer. Yeah, John, we're out of time and everybody you got to check out Fate of Fact podcast so you can hear more of these type of conversations. That's John's new podcast, it just started. So, but I'll say this, Biden actually does have a unique opportunity, but I would be shocked if he took it. Because he's at the end of his career by every measure, right? So if anyone could call out the corruption and be a hero for it, it would be him. I just don't know that he's got it in his DNA. He just grew up in this system and to your point, this system made him president of the United States, the most powerful man on earth. I can't see him revolting against the same system that put him in that position. But I would love to be wrong and it would make all the difference. Well, for what it's worth, I have, he's my he's my friend and and we have talked about this kind of thing, not with this level of specificity. And one of the things that he knows is that we often honor presidents in the long term for surprising us, whether it's Nixon in China, Johnson in civil rights, Reagan in the Soviets. And so I wouldn't count him out. It was one of the first bills he ever introduced. There's no reason not to do it. It would, he just, he can, he doesn't need the corporate donors. That's the other thing, right? People just assume you need to make the donors happy. But once you're president, you have so much free media that you don't need the donors at all. Trump proved it, right? And so he, Biden is free. Somebody's just got to let him know that. <laughs> and then see if he, he can act on that. All right, John Meacham, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.